You're listening to episode six of NASA in Silicon Valley. Today we have a special episode with both Russ Belikoff and Eduardo Bendek, senior research scientists here at NASA Ames, who specialize in hunting for exoplanets. We discuss the recent announcement from the European Southern Observatory on the existence of Proxima b, an Earth-sized exoplanet orbiting in the just right habitable zone of our closest neighboring star. We also go into future NASA projects and missions to find exoplanets and how the various methods lead our journey of discovery through the solar system and beyond. Here are Russ Belikoff and Eduardo Bendek. Eduardo, what brought you here? So I was born in Chile. Okay. And uh, I did my undergrad education in Chile, but always dreaming about aerospace. So I okay. always like rockets and telescopes. And I continued my studies in, uh, in astronomy and engineering, both at the same time. Then I joined an observatory, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope in Chile. Okay. And I worked in the desert, in the Atacama Desert, for five years. It's the driest place on Earth. Yes. As I've, as I've learned from these conversations. <laughs> it's actually super dry. There's like yeah. no vegetation. Because you go to the desert in Tucson, and there mm. are like some kind of little bushes and... Cactuses, stuff yeah, like that. Over there, it's like nothing. No. Wow. So it's pretty impressive. It really looks like Mars. I've never been on Mars, but from the <laughs> images... Yes, uh, it really looks there yet. Exactly. <laughs> really looks similar and uh, yeah so I spent there five years looking at the sky mm -hmm. um, and then I moved to the US uh, to do my PhD in okay. optics because then I realized that there were a lot of astronomers there were a lot of engineers but there were few people understanding the main tool which is optics the mirrors and exactly. like lenses and all that which is a very complex discipline by itself I imagine. <laughs> and it's kind of a borderline between science and engineering. So it's okay. kind of a really physics uh, with a little bit of applied physics and engineering. Uh, so normally, traditionally, it's not a discipline by itself. Uh, and then uh, I started to do my dissertation work with mm -hmm. uh, Olivier Guillon, which is an astronomer and very famous uh, instrumentalist, a person that designed many instruments. Okay. And then the opportunity to join NASA came up as a postdoctoral fellow. Okay, so you were doing your doctorate and then just came on over to work at the same time. Yeah. So what happened is my research somehow was connected to, to exoplanet detection and I was working on a grant for NASA as a student. Okay. And then when I graduated and defended, then uh, the opportunity to join as a postdoc uh, with Russ Velikov uh, came up. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Russ and Olivier uh, helped me to get here as a postdoctoral fellow for two years. Nice. So, so did you guys, you guys met each other like in the process of being doctoral students or were you already here, Russ? Were you already uh, at NASA? I was, I was already here, although I think Eduardo and I m may have met even before I joined AIMS. So I joined AIMS in 2008. Okay. And uh, the Exoplanets community uh, is, uh, you know, most people know um, mm -hmm. almost everybody else. So I had known of Eduardo's uh, so research his and, work. Yeah. Yeah, and held it in high esteem uh, before uh, we actually started working together. Unlike Eduardo, I grew up in uh, completely opposite 
hemispheres, so the northern hemisphere as opposed to south, and the mm-hmm. eastern hemisphere as opposed to western. Okay. Uh, so I, you grew up looking at different stars. Yeah, yes. different stars. <laughs> so uh, I spent the first 12 years of my life in Ukraine, which was Soviet Union at the time. Okay. And then I, uh, my family immigrated to, to the U.S. And uh, ever since I was a kid, just like Eduardo, I was fascinated by space. I was fascinated by astronomy. The whole, uh, you know, space race, which was a big thing, mm-hmm. of course, uh, you know, during the Cold War, uh, always fascinated me. My whole childhood, I thought I'd be either an astronaut or uh, you know, some kind of astronomer, yeah, yeah. Uh, just like most kids. Uh, then when I went to college, I thought that those, uh, uh, you know, dreams maybe childish and may die, or at least that's what people have been telling me. <laughs> yes. So uh, I went into... Real life gets to you. <laughs> exactly. So I went into engineering and uh, kind of away from uh, astronomy because I thought that was okay. kind of the, the more serious discipline. Okay. And also uh, for grad school, I went to Stanford. Uh, and at the time, uh, there was the uh, dot com, you know, bubble, and and actually it was a little bit after that it was a telecom bubble. Okay. So I had considered pursuing astronomy, but the the whole telecom bubble in Silicon Valley, yeah. you know, promises of, of riches and entrepreneurship, <laughs> yes. all of that a stuff. Modern day gold s- rush seduced me exactly, <laughs> and so I, I did my uh, grad school in engineering as well. Although it was it was optics, so it it touched upon astronomy uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. I was working with deformable mirrors. And by the time I finished my grad school, the telecom bubble had burst and a lot of people were disillusioned. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, and that was right about the time, uh, I was 2004, 2005, that I found out about projects that uh, astronomers uh, and NASA in particular mm-hmm. were developing to uh, detect Earth-like planets. Okay. And, and that completely blew me away because I thought that I had known that people were detecting exoplanets, but I had no idea that we were so close to mm-hmm. being able to detect potentially habitable planets. Yeah. And uh, that, that and you was, can just have a job in it. Yeah. <laughs> so. And uh, I, th- I think that the, the critical point for me was uh, when I went to my college reunions, Jeremy Kasdan, who is a professor of uh, um, engineering at Princeton, and uh, um, a few others had given mm-hmm. a talk on what was known at the time as TPF, Terrestrial Planet Finder. It was a, a okay. mission study to detect Earth-like planets around other stars. Okay. And I was just completely blown away by that. I thought, this is it. I'm stopping what I'm doing. Nice. I am following that path. And I never looked back. Is there a big optics team at NASA Ames? Or is it, you know, like, how does that work? I think that people sometimes overlook the role of engineering on astronomy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to to be able to do all these observations, you need extremely sensitive sensitive instrument that yes. we're constantly pushing the edge of science and technology to to make those instruments happen. So yeah. uh, every research center in Europe or in the U.S., NASA, they have big teams of engineers working on that. Now, okay. in in our case, it's very interesting because we're both hybrids hybrids of engineering and, and astronomy. So, okay. Uh, so I did my main career on mechanical engineering with a minor in astrophysics, and then I did oh. optics. In the case of Russ, uh, he did electrical engineering. But but what happens is when you understand the fundamental physics, you can always flow down to the application. Okay. So I think that that's a key, and that's actually what a PhD is about. That's the reason that it's called Doctor of Philosophy, because okay. you, you start from the philosophy. And I think that that's a... 
so Raz leads the group of instrumentation and probably he can tell you more about mm -hmm. how the group started and, and all that. Cool. Yeah, and I was going to say, even before we you know go really into the exoplanet thing, but part of the cool reason of us talking now is just big announcement from, from ESO, the European Space Observatory. Did I get that right? No. No. Southern European Observatory. Awesome. All right. No, European yeah, no, Southern confusing. Observatory. Sorry, I said it wrong. That's ESO, European Southern Observatory. Okay, so there was the Proxima B was the announcement. What exactly happened? What exactly did they announce there? They confirmed that there is a planet around this star, a planet okay. like the Earth, the size of the Earth, approximately the size of the Earth. 1.3. And mm -hmm. in the habitable zone okay. of, of the star. Now, they have been looking at this, at this star for many years. Mm -hmm. And there being was... Being the closest star or yes. within the cluster there. Cluster. Yes, and also because it's, um, it's a very good candidate, but they, they even the samples were not good enough to really confirm the planet, but they had a signal, they have a, an indication. So now mm -hmm. they confirm with a very high likelihood that the planet is there. So that's the discovery. So what was kind of the difference? Because I know there, there's several different methods to, you know, to identify and confirm um, exoplanets. So w what method were they using and how is that different from some of the stuff that you guys are working on? They were using a technique called radial velocity. Okay. So. There are three main techniques to detect planets that are indirect. Mm -hmm. So basically, you don't see the planet, you see the star. Okay. And the planet perturbs the star, and you see that perturbation. Okay. Because see, actually seeing the planet is really hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there are three ways in which the planet can perturb the star. One is if the planet goes in front of the star and therefore blocks a little tiny bit of the, the light of the star, and mm -hmm. that's transit photometry. Okay. That's what Kepler does. Okay, the, yeah. The Kepler mission. Then there is another option, which is radial velocity. So as a planet orbits the star, it creates a gravitational tag. So it's the same way that when you play with a kid and you move the kid around, and then mm -hmm. you're kind of flying the kid around, then you, you <laughs> wobble around yeah, the common center kind of, of gravity. Yeah, it's wobble, like it kind of moves. Exactly. So that creates a Doppler shift on the light of the star. As the star is getting closer to you or going farther away when the planet is orbiting, that creates uh, a signal that we can see. We can see how the spectrum of the star is, ch is changing. Now, this is really hard because to detect yeah. Proxima b, you need to measure the speed of the star at 1.4 meter per second. 1.4 meter per second is a velocity of a person walking when you're shopping on a mall. Oh, so imagine wow. that you're it's able so to measure the speed of the star at that precision. They've discovered using that radial velocity method before, but for stars that are much further away, is it almost easier to find stars? Not easier being not the right word, but because we've used that method to discover exoplanets further away, you would think that for stars that are closer to us, that that might be easier to see that, or is that not the case? Uh, it, it is the case given that everything else is the same. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, really far. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, things, the thing about radio velocity is that it's easier to detect closer in planets and larger mm -hmm. planets. So if, if you have like a Jupiter that's mm -hmm. uh, on a, let's say, three-day orbit around, uh, around a star, Yeah then something like that is pretty easy to detect even when it's way out there. Uh, but uh, this planet is very small. It's 1.3 Earth masses, or to be more precise, it's 1.3 what's called m psi 9, which is like a minimum mass. Uh, 
Okay. And uh, its orbit is pretty short, you know, 11 days. Um, okay. But, uh, I mean, the, the plenty of planets that are, have even shorter orbits than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the star is somewhat... Uh, it's different from our star. It's not the same as, like, the sun. That's right. It's, it? it's much fainter than, than our sun. Okay. Uh, but it, it actually, I mean, it, it also helps because the smaller the star is, the uh, easier it is for the planet to wobble it. Okay. Even though there's less photons from the star for our telescopes to actually measure the wobble. Okay, because it's smaller. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But you touch on a very interesting point. Yeah. You, radial velocity and transit photometry are almost insensitive to the distance. So basically, it doesn't really matter how the oh, star really? is. And, and, and actually, if you, because what matters, if you're blocking 10% of the light of the star, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if the star is really far or really close, as you're long as your telescope can get the light. Oh, okay. With radial velocity, it's the same. The Doppler shift won't change whether the star is really close or really okay. far. Now, there are other two techniques that are very sensitive to the distance of the star. Okay. One is direct imaging. So if you really want to see the planet, then you are getting uh, photons reflected from the planet. Back uh, to Earth. And uh, then the distance <laughs> matters. Because if the, plan- okay. if the star is farther out, the distance between the planet and the star gets smaller and smaller. Have we seen any exoplanets from direct imaging? Yeah. Yes, we have. Mm-hmm. Wow. But not Earth-like. Not no, Earth-like. Not, not, not e- like a big Jupiter, like Jupiter, Jupiter yeah. big size planets. Yeah. Uh, e- even more weird than that, uh, the oh, only wow. planets we've actually seen by taking pictures of them are planets that are very, very far from the star, like we're talking farther mm-hmm. than the orbit of Pluto. Okay. Uh, and they're shining by their own light, uh, meaning that they have just formed, and when planets uh, are very young, have, they just form, they are very hot because all mm-hmm. the rocks, you know, bumping together and are heating um, themselves up to like okay. melting point, and so they glow. And we can detect this infrared glow from them, even when they're so far away from the star that the amount of light that they reflect from the star is very mm-hmm. small. So these are the uh, easiest planets uh, to, to direct, the easiest kind of planets yeah. t- that exist to directly image, and those are the ones that have been directly imaged so far. To directly image an Earth-like planet is quite challenging. Yeah, it's, it's very small, very far away. <laughs> But technology is steadily advancing to where it's possible. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember hearing, it was an example of somebody was saying, like, a spotlight in, like, you know, in a far-off city, and then you see a fly. Yes, far, far, far. <laughs> Analogies yes. like yes, that exactly. of understanding how hard this really is. Cool. And, and Eduardo, you had mentioned that there was another two methods. You talked about the direct imaging what was were you gonna say then another so, one? So there are four mainstream methods. Okay. There are more alternative <laughs> There's always we're not we're not like cutting out any options here. Uh, exactly. The but more methods, we'll take it. But the more mainstreams are four. Okay. One is direct imaging, which is the only that is actually seeing the planet, and there are mm-hmm. the other three that are not direct. You're inferring exactly the transit and also the wobble. Transit mm-hmm. photometry the wobble but the wobble has two different flavors one flavor is called radial velocity which you are measuring the doppler shift okay what we just discussed but there is another flavor of observing the same phenomena which is actually looking at the star looking the wobble of the star okay instead of observing the the how the color of the star changes because of the doppler you see the motion of the star and then you can tell that there is a planet 
tagging the star. Is it almost like tidal waves or, uh, or am no, I not thinking it's actually thing? real motion of the star. So, wow. But that requires uh, extreme pre- precision and that technique has not been delivering a lot of results because there are no instruments able to do that. Now, the European Space Agency launched a space telescope dedicated okay. to this and that started operation a couple of years ago and probably in two or three years it's going to yield thousands of planets. Wow. Uh, so that people hasn't seen the impact of that because mm-hmm. the data hasn't been processed or delivered. Okay. And, uh, but it will make a big difference. Now, the advantage of that technique is tells you the mass of the planet, tells you how heavy is okay. the planet. Because when you see the star wobbling, you can tell how, how big how is much, the planet. Yeah, exactly. how much it wobbles depends on how big the other one is. Exactly. Yeah. Instead, transit photometry, radial velocity, and direct imaging have a hard time assessing what is the mass. There are ways to infer the mass, but not very precisely. Okay, so what are we looking at for for NASA? I mean, the Kepler, and now Kepler telescope is already out there. You know, the K2, using the same telescope, but in a slightly different way. Um, and we have other telescopes lined up to go up. Obviously, they're working on the James Webb telescope, which is a big one over at Goddard that they're making. Also, tests. Talk a little bit about what, what do we have to look forward to of, you know, new instruments, new tools that you guys get to play around with. Sure, I guess I'll, I'll take that. So <laughs> you mentioned a lot of missions, and NASA has a wonderful portfolio of uh, exoplanets missions uh, coming up. Um, so uh, TESS, I believe, is, is the next one in line, uh, which is a mission to do transit detection of exoplanets like Kepler. Okay. But unlike Kepler, it's going to look um, across the entire sky. Um, so Kepler was looking uh, at a narrow field of view and very deeply yeah. and for a very long time, so it was able to detect uh, planets uh, up to you know very long periods like a year or even longer um, whereas uh, TESS is designed to see planets that are shorter periods okay. uh, which can still get you um, planets in the habitable zone but around dimmer stars like pr- for example if Proxima Centauri was transiting then that would be you know uh, potentially one of the stars that uh, kind of star that TESS could do mm-hmm. um, so uh, the next one uh, that um, could uh, do a lot of wonderful exoplanet science is the James Webb Telescope, yeah. as you said. So that's launching um, 2018. Well, how, how is that going to detect more exoplanets? What method is that using primarily? Um, or plans s- to use, I guess. So uh, it can do the transit method, and specifically okay. transit spectroscopy. So. Um, I think the whole community is looking forward to transit spectroscopy that JWC could do on planets, but it's unlikely that okay. it could do that on any Earth-like planets or, okay. or any potentially habitable planets. I think we would have to be very lucky if one exists uh, you know, sufficiently nearby and it's around a sufficient star that JWST can do it. Um, I, I would think that, with especially with the transiting method it's like it's not only do you have a tool that's strong enough to see it and detect it but you got i mean how long does it take for a planet to rotate it takes us 365 days like how often are you lucky enough that a planet crosses in front of it yeah well uh, i mean there are planets that are much shorter like proxima b for example is is 11 days so uh and jwc would not be searching for planets it would be uh it would be doing you know transits on 
planets that are already known, so it would know exactly when to look. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, now, JWC also has uh, a couple of uh, um, instruments called coronagraphs, and that's a fancy word to yeah. describe you know, an instrument that simply blocks the star so you can take a picture of a planet. Okay, um, However, like um, an eclipse. Kind of uh, yes, or, exactly. Yeah, okay. you're 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 eclipsing, if you will, then, the the star inside your telescope. Oh, okay. And um, and then and that allows you to take a picture. But uh, its chronographs were um, uh, you know designed, and the design was locked uh, many years before some of the more powerful chronographs that are capable of detecting Earth-like planets were developed. So uh, it doesn't have the performance required to do Earth-like planets mm -hmm. or in, anywhere close, but it may give us some uh, interesting other planets. Then uh, another mission that the community is looking forward to is NASA's flagship mission in the next decade, which is 2020s, mm -hmm. called WFIRST. Okay. And it's primarily a non-exoplanet mission. However, okay. it uh, will have the capability of uh, doing exoplanet science, both by direct imaging and another method called microlensing, which okay. I'm not going to get into. But uh, um, So it is not expected to, or not designed, I should say, to detect Earth-like exoplanets. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's some uh, possibility that it may. Um, and so either with the coronagraph, if the coronagraph outperforms, if we're lucky, and it outperforms mm -hmm. the design requirements, or if some ingenious person figures out how to process the data to, to squeeze out, uh, you know, potentially <laughs> plants um, out of it. There's also a study going on to see if you can fly something called a starshade with this telescope, okay. which is a big shield. It's a kind of funny shaped shield that you fly tens of thousands of kilometers away from your telescope to block the star. Oh, so interesting. That's that's still kind of speculative uh, for W first, but it's an interesting, very interesting idea. And if that happens, it would be absolutely amazing because then that would enable us to to do Earth-like planets. And but, and so for you, for both of you, for the you know, on the, from the optics point of view, um, how, how does that like really? fold into your work in terms of like how those these get designed or is it also just kind of understanding what kind of information you get from these telescopes and then deciphering it yeah so our, <laughs> our work yeah our work uh, is primarily on uh designing instruments but uh, i mean to design an instrument you also have to do a lot of simulations on uh you know what science you get and uh, what kind of performance you get um so what i've just described are um, kind of missions that are officially in, in NASA's uh, mm -hmm. on, on NASA's roadmap. In addition, so and, and we are a lot of the work that we're doing is actually supporting um, those missions and uh, designing okay. things for those missions. Yeah. However, um, another aspect of what we're doing, and uh, I think Eduardo and I are particularly excited about that, yeah. is the possibility of launching uh, small, low-cost missions. Mm -hmm that uh, allow us both to demonstrate technology and potentially directly image uh, a potentially hydro planet a lot sooner than okay. uh, some, some of these uh, larger missions would do. Now, we wouldn't be like upstaging those missions. Uh, I think we'd be helping those missions. The, the, the bigger missions would, would give us um, hopefully uh, a large survey of, of uh, many different stars and find planets around many different stars. Mm -hmm. But um, 
it is in, in principle possible to launch a very small low-cost space telescope to uh, target it at the Alpha Centauri system okay. to directly image potentially heterogeneous planets around it as early as this decade. Oh, wow. And so looking at the different instrumentations and, you know, because the, the, the Spitzer telescope, we have Hubble, you know, Kepler that's out mm-hmm. there, and the new ones that are going up, not to mention the land-based telescopes. Yes. I'd imagine like each of these telescopes kind of using the different methods is kind of getting a little piece of that puzzle, a little bit of that mosaic. And so I'd imagine within the community of combining some of that data, you find stuff that probably wouldn't find on their own. Yeah, that's, uh, that's ex- exactly the most common way to confirm planets. Okay. So, for, for example, Kepler measures the presence of a planet, and then a radial velocity instrument on the ground can, can confirm, confirm it. Confirm it. So you with use that, two methods. Exactly, so. with a separate technique, so you remove false positive. Also, I think it's important to mention the landscape, on the landscape of missions, turns out that we are observing an anomaly on the number of missions devoted to exoplanet. Because okay. if you look at it, you have Gaia, which is this European astrometry mission. Okay. Then you have Kepler, TESS, then the Europeans will have Keops and Plato. So in a time scale of 15 years, you have more than five space missions wow. dedicated to this subject, which is completely unseen <laughs> on, on astrophysics, that you have five space missions devoted to this subject. That shows you a little bit how, how this field is growing. Mm-hmm. But not only that, if you look at those missions, four of them, which is Kepler, Tess, Keops, and Plato, okay. are transit photometry. So the same technique of seeing how the planet goes in front of the star. Now, that technique all can only get about 1% of the total planets because it's very unlikely mm-hmm. that the system is aligned in such a way that the planet can block part of the light of the star. Um, that also shows you something else, that it is necessary to start to dive in into the systems in particular mm-hmm. because those missions are survey. They will tell you demographics. They will tell you probabilities of planets. Okay. But they won't tell you specific details of an interesting system. So. For Russ and I, our focus on Alpha Centauri is because we really think that it's a very, very nice system to look at that is suitable <laughs> yeah. to, to do direct imaging on it. Okay. Therefore, uh, we are taking all that heritage, all that knowledge, and yeah. from that, we're inferring that this system is the best system to dive in and look in, in detail. Yeah, excellent. Um, and for anybody who's listening, if you have questions for Eduardo, questions for Russ, uh, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. And you could also hit up at NASA Kepler as well, um, as I'm sure you guys pay, <laughs> pay a lot of attention to what's going through over there. So thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Always uh, love speaking about these things. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.